This is The Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. Welcome to The Storied Outdoors. My name is Brad Hill, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and pal, Brian Gill. We are, man, we're so pumped today to connect with Pete Peterson. Pete is the author of the Revolutionary War Adventure, The Fiddler's Gun, and its sequel, Fiddler's Green, as well as a variety of short stories. As a playwright, he's also published The Battle of Franklin, a stage adaptation of Frankenstein and the Hiding Place, which I hope we get to talk about some in our conversation today. Um, He's done lots of things in his life. I, I was reading about this, and I thought this was interesting. A U.S. Marine air traffic controller. That sounds uh, sounds stressful. Uh, te- television editor, art teacher, boat right, which I had to look up. I didn't know what a boat right was, but now I do. <laughs> a Florida sheriff's at the Florida Sheriff's Boys Ranch. And not too long ago, um, he spent several weeks, several weeks, on a, the pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago. He and his wife, Jennifer, live in Nashville, where he is an exec- the executive director of the Rabbit Room and managing editor of the Rabbit Room Press. As I was prepping for this, Pete, uh, I saw that Marine, the, the air uh, traffic controller, and we had just recorded with Kenneth and, uh, uh, Kenneth and uh, Shay from Wolfbane Books. I don't oh, know yeah. if you knew this or not, but uh, Kenneth was an air traffic controller for the Navy and spent time on a Naval <laughs> aircraft carrier in the, um, in the Persian Gulf. So I thought that was interesting. Interesting. I need to talk to him and we might've been on the same ship. How about that? <laughs> I was like, I've never met an air traffic controller and now I've met two. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I should clarify. I'm not technically an air traffic controller. I was what they call a, uh, air support operations operator. Uh, the difference being an air traffic controller uses radar to see where planes are, and I don't get that benefit. I had to convince pilots to tell me where they were and believe them and uh, <laughs> learned in the process. That sounds pilots, way more stressful. <laughs> yeah, pilots do not tell you the truth. Uh, yeah, you get on the radio and you're like, hey, what's your position? And I say, oh, I'm at such and such. And then I look up out. and I'm like, actually, I see you and you're right here. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. I'm like, you know, there are other planes in the area. Helpful for us to be honest here. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, man, this past November, man, I had the pleasure of uh, sitting in on your session about the Camino de Santiago or the way of St. James. And it was such a rich conversation. And as we left, I could tell there seemed to be a lot left on the bone to sort of Mm -hmm. unpack and talk about. I can't imagine trying to compress the time that you spent on the Camino into a one hour conversation that not only was it compressed into a one hour conversation, but one that you shared with other folks who were a part of that. So I'd love for us to spend some time unpacking that, but Pete, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Pete, uh, can you give us a brief refresher for those who may not be familiar with the Camino de Santiago uh, what is the way of St. James, and, and what yeah. was the inspiration for you to take on that journey? Yeah, um, well, the inspiration, ours was the same as a lot of Americans, actually. Back in, I think it was 2011, 2012, Emilio Estevez wrote and directed a movie starring his dad, Martin Sheen, 
called The Way. And uh, it's a small independent film and it's really well done. Um, and Jennifer and I saw that really early. We got married in 2011 and, you know, it, within the first year of our marriage, I think we saw that movie and we're both really drawn to it and the way that, you know, it, it portrayed this pilgrimage. And the movie is about uh, a man whose son goes to hike uh, the Camino de Santiago. And I'll explain that in just a second. Uh, and his son dies on the first day. Uh, and so he goes to collect his ashes and then decides to hike it himself and sprinkle his son's ashes along the whole pilgrimage way. Oh, wow. uh, so that was the inspiration for us wanting to go. And we just kind of put a pin in it uh, back then saying, one of these days. And so then a couple of years ago, uh, my wife was just, you know, she was trying to get into exercise habits and just couldn't develop anything that she enjoyed doing. And I told her one night, I said, you know, I think you need a goal. So the exercise isn't just exercise for exercise sake, but like, something that you're working toward. So think about it. And, and so Monday morning she woke up and she said, I want to hike the Camino de Santiago. And I was like, wow, not what I had in mind, but okay, let's do it. <laughs> a little and bit more than a couch to, couch to 5k <laughs> I was there. More the local 5k. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but later that week we bought our tickets. So to sum up what the Camino is, the Camino is a Spanish word that means the way. Uh, you know, kind of like the Mandalorian, you know, this is the way. And in Spanish, you would say this is the Camino, which I kind of love. Uh, but uh, it's a historic uh, pilgrimage route of the church. Uh, so there are three primary pilgrimages of the church historically, and those are to Rome, to Jerusalem. And then the third is to Santiago. And Santiago uh, is uh, in Spanish means St. James. Saint Iago. Uh, so that's where the word comes from. The Camino de Santiago is the, the path, the way to uh, the city of St. James. Mm -hmm. And in Catholic tradition, uh, Santiago is the resting place of the remains of St. James. Of course, you know, you can question the historicity of that all you want, mm -hmm. uh, but whether you believe that his actual bones are there or not, for a thousand years or more, um, the church has believed that they are. And people from all over the world have traveled there to kind of pay homage uh, to, you know, one of the apostles. So whether it's historically accurate or not, it is still fraught with uh, tradition and meaning. Um, so even though I'm not a Catholic, and I would probably argue that that's probably not St. James, uh, that did not affect um, my desire to really engage in the pilgrimage as a pilgrimage, if that makes sense. Um, and so for the last thousand years, the church has, you know, developed this kind of series of hostels and an entire economy that sort of follows this route across Europe. And then it all converges, uh, or a lot of it converges in, uh, in France, just across the border from Spain. And the last 500 miles of it run across Spain to Santiago. And so the whole way is kind of like dotted with uh, pilgrimage hostels, uh, which they call albergues. And they are just, you know, it, it, a lot of people, when you say hostel, a lot of people have in their minds this kind of idea of dirty, hairy, smelly hitchhikers in Europe, you know, all kind of living in a gross dorm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's not like that. Like the these things, uh, by and large, I mean, I'm sure that there are some bad spots you can end up that do kind of, you know, fit that mold. But what our experience was most of them are very small, 
there a lot of them are places that are run by families uh, I, we stayed in a couple of houses that have been doing this for hundreds of years, just wow. serving pilgrims. Uh, and their whole family history is associated with it. And uh, so, you know, you walk into these places and they serve you food. Um, there are places where you show up and the monks wash your feet, you know, just wow. like back in Jesus' day. You know, you've been walking all day and they want you to kick off your shoes so they can wash your feet as an act of service. So it was all marked by this sense of Christian hospitality. And not all of it's Christian. Some people are just, you know, living on the route and making money. And that's fine. But it's hard to get away from the traditional aspect of it and seeing it in terms of this thing that the church has for a thousand years valued as meaningful. Uh, and then seeing how uh, people have kind of gathered along it to support the pilgrims. And then to spend, you know, a lot of days walking in solitude and thinking about why was this so important that the church encouraged people to do it for a thousand years. Mm. Um, and, you know, what you get out of that is kind of up to you, but I would argue that it's incredibly valuable. So th that's the short. I don't know if you want me to get into everything right now, but that's kind of the short version of what we did. So the pilgrimage is a 500-mile walk across Spain. Wow. Man, that's that's quite the uh, the exercise goal. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and I will say that like um, it sounds like, for instance, like when we were training for it, we did uh, some stretches of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, um, and I would not encourage a sixty-year-old or a seventy-year-old or an eighty-year-old to go walk the Appalachian Trail. It is mm -hmm. rough. You have to carry everything on your back. Mm -hmm. steep hills it's living in the wild it's hard that is not the camino de santiago uh, i walked a ways with an 89 year old um i we walked a couple of days with a blind couple who were doing it for the second time wow. um, so it is very accessible you will see people with wheelchairs um like it, there is the only thing preventing a person from doing this pilgrimage is the busyness of your own life. I would even argue that money shouldn't prevent you because it is not that expensive. It is shockingly mm -hmm. affordable. Wow. We got a group that's going from uh, Sanford University and they have a training plan called the Couch to Camino right now. And so <laughs> <Yeah. they're, laughs> that's good. If you go without uh, training, you will regret it, but you will still, <laughs> you'll still survive. <laughs> that's great. Couch to Camino. Well, I hope they listen to this episode while, while they train. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll I'll be sure to pass this one along. <laughs> That's right, man. You there was so much covered in that presentation that was that was rich. Um, you talked about several things that I, I wanted you to to share a little bit about. You talked about carrying something with you from oh. beginning to end. Um, and now yeah. that you've now that there's also there's also a, a lot more time now that even that has has passed since that and so what are some personal reflections back that you've had even since even since the presentation? Yeah, it, it was an interesting experience. Well, I should first say that like we I done we had both done a lot of research going into it, and so it's almost impossible to do much research without coming across videos and books and blog articles and stuff and podcasts of people talking about how it's the most powerful, transcendental sort of spiritual, emotional experience they've ever had. Wow. And I went into it being like, whatever, I'm not, I'm not buying into that. I'm not into Have you been to Hutchmoot? 
I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Um, But like, I didn't want, but mainly it's not that I was closed off to that possibility. I just didn't want to go expecting anything like that. You know, I told people like, you know, I'm, I'm taking six weeks off and I'm just going on a walk. And Mm -hmm. if that's all I get out of it, I am totally happy. And so skeptical person that I am, you know, I didn't expect to have the, the religious sort of experience that a lot of people claim to. But I got to tell you, it moved me almost every day. Uh, it was the you know, I, it was the most profound thing I've ever done wow. um, in my life. Uh, it, it, it's still to this day, it's hard to describe it exactly. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I hope this is okay to say, but Bruce, I heard Bruce Springsteen say one time that uh, talking about songwriting is uh, kind of like talking about sex. Like the minute you start talking about it, you've diminished it. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> like it's something that you do. You're not supposed to talk about it. And I feel like it's kind of like this. It, it's, you know, it's such a an all encompassing physical, spiritual, emotional experience that it's really hard to sum up in words. And so a lot of times I'll just find myself saying, you know what? You just need to go do it. Yeah. Like that's the only way to understand I mean, but, you even got a tattoo, right? I mean, you got a tattoo. I do. I got a tattoo right, right there. Uh, all your podcast listeners can hear my tattoo right here. There we go. Well, we'll have it on. <laughs> we'll, we'll put the Zoom video actually on YouTube. So actually, Oh, really? Oh, so, great. Yeah. So people are looking at me. I better not pick my nose. We have dozens of dozens <laughs> yeah. of people. Dozens of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Dozens of Yeah, people. I did. I, so I got the tattoo in Santiago um, once we had completed the pilgrimage. Uh, but... So I think the a couple of things that made it that experience for me were one, you know, not having the expectation that was going to change my life allowed me to be open to whatever happened in a way that I don't think I would have if I had gone into it thinking, okay, change me, you know. <laughs> um, but the, the the things that were really meaningful for for me were had a lot to do with the church and the experience of the church as, as an American. Like we went, you know just coming out of COVID and just coming out of, you know, a lot of political stuff that had me really disillusioned with the way the church is being the church in our culture. Mm. Uh, and so just skeptical of everything and, you know, feeling like what, what is the church doing? Is this, you know, really being led by the Holy spirit. Mm. And so kind of going into this experience with those things in my mind, it was a wonderful way of experience of experiencing the traditions and historicity of the church in a way that was so much bigger than the way I'm used to thinking about it. Um, and like I've said a couple of times, like th- this is something the church has believed, the capital C church has believed as a meaningful experience for followers of Christ for over a thousand years. Mm. And there's got to be a reason for that. And I don't think it's anything as crass as money, you know? Yeah. yeah that doesn't last a thousand years. We actually went in a whole dirt. Right. Well, we went in a holy year, which technically means if you're Catholic, when you get to, to Santiago, if you walk through the correct door of the church, um, you get a plenary indulgence and can have your sins forgiven. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, that's generous of them, <laughs> given what I know of the gospel. Um, and also, I thought, man, like, let's do some sinning so that we can get it all forgiven when we get there. Let's <laughs> rack them up. Should have come down yeah, here to so. could have come to Mobile for Mardi Gras and racked them on up. <laughs> yeah, but all joking aside, um, like it was just it was beautiful to see the way that the churches persisted over there across centuries. And uh, you know, I, I had these this thought a few times that 
you know, you end up walking through the ruins of a lot of churches, mm. uh, uh, medieval churches that have fallen into ruins and are not there anymore, or sometimes they're in ruins, yet there is still a few monks staying there, and they will welcome you in and feed you, that kind of thing. And I thought, like, several times, like, what if, wouldn't it be beautiful if, you know, the way, you know, you walk through through Europe, which is very much post-Christian at this point, and you see a lot of these churches that are falling into disrepair and they're seen in the past. And I thought, wouldn't it be beautiful if, you know, the new creation uh, that we're looking forward to as Christians, you know, in addition to being, you know, our bodily resurrection was, you know, is there a sense in which it's the resurrection of all creation? And what if the, the bones of these churches are also resurrected, you know, and uh, re kind of, uh, vivified in the new creation and all of this is once again the center of worship and and praise and i thought how beautiful that would be and why might why shouldn't that be true mm. you know um i don't know if it is but i hope that it is so it's this beautiful experience of the church throughout history uh just kind of stumbling into all these different there were evangelical uh you know examples of it there were catholic examples of it lutheran examples of it just uh, everybody participating in this desire to just care for people who are walking. And, uh, you know, you walk into one of these places and nobody says, hey, you know, have you given your life to Jesus? It's no, hey, here's a meal, Hmm. which is, I think, just a much better understanding of Christianity than we're used to in our very sort of evangelical missions-driven mindset often. Uh, the first thing to do is to feed people and make them comfortable, give them what they need, you know, yeah. and Christ uh, will be in that ministry, whether you say his name or not. Mm-hmm. But beautifully, um, there are people out there doing real missions work in beautiful ways. Uh, one example is uh, we stopped at this little place. I can't remember the town name. Just a wonderful little town, you know, in the kind of hill country of, uh, I guess it would be eastern Spain. And, uh, you know, they showed me to my room, which was on the top floor, and right outside the, the, the exterior door was the roof of this kind of like sandstone old, you know, building that's been there for hundreds of years. And uh, I just kind of sat there and ate my sandwich and drank my coffee and could look over the whole valley. Mm. Uh, and it was just beautiful. And these people were there just to take care of me, you know, for $8. You know, that's all it costs to stay there. And that includes a communal meal. So you go down in the evening and there's everybody that's staying there that night sits around the table and they bring you this home cooked food and they encourage conversation. And every night you're talking to people from many different languages and cultures and beliefs, all kind of open to this experience. And the church is setting the table for it. Uh, and so then after oh, that's, dinner, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful. And then after dinner, they invited us to join what they called their Jesus meditation um, in, you know, the stable, if anybody wanted to. Everybody's welcome. It's not required. So my wife and I went and sat down, and it was in the stable, which was kind of lined with oriental carpets, and everybody sat on the floor. And uh, and an old German woman, no, Dutch, an old Dutch woman, which was important to me because I was in the process of um, – rewriting my play about Corey Tinboom's The Hiding Place at the time. Corey was Dutch. So this old Dutch woman came in and sat down amongst us and uh, said, hey, we're just going to read some scripture and meditate on it, and then we're going to share a little bit. 
And so she read a passage of scripture, kind of lecto divini, uh, lecto divina style. Um, did I say that right? Lectio divina. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting that the one that she chose was, um, come to me, all those who are weary and carrying heavy loads was the way that she read it. And I will give you rest. And so after walking 20 miles with a load on your back and then being given this hospitality, it was a really beautiful scripture and she would just read it and then she would sit in it and then she would read it again and then sit in it. And everybody, there were 20, 30 people in this stable, many of whom I know were not Christian, many of whom might've even been hostile to Christianity. They participated, they listened, you know? And then when she was done, she just said, you know, and now, you know, let's just go around the circle. And if you have anything that you want to share about why you're here or what you've experienced here on the Camino, just feel free to let us know. Uh, no pressure. And I think everybody in the circle shared something. And it was really beautiful. Um, you know, like I said, people from all walks of life coming from every different kind of background you can imagine, but all open to, you know, hearing what the way had to give them. Uh, and it was really emotional. People got really emotional in that kind of testimonial. But the thing that stood out to me the most was uh, one of the gentlemen who helped run the hostel, the albergue, uh, he shared his testimony. And he said that, um, I think he was English, and he said uh, in, 10 years ago or so, he became a Christian and read the Bible for the first time. And the thing that jumped out at him was um, the the commission to go into all the world, making disciples of all people. And he felt really called to do that and really helpless to do it. And he said that he prayed, Lord, like, I hear that this is what you want me to do, but I, I'm just a guy in England. I have no idea how to share this with the world. Um, I don't know what to do. And he said, uh, in whatever way, the Holy Spirit came to him and said, go to Spain and I'm going to bring the world to you. Uh, and so he listened to that and he, he ended up at this little albergue in Spain and every night his, he sets a table for people from all over the world and, you know, Jesus is available to them, you know, mm. at the very least he is hospitable and at the most he is sharing the gospel and it, it was beautiful. It wasn't pushy. It wasn't, it wasn't cheesy. It, like I, I have such a, um, antenna up for what feels inauthentic, you know, in Christian circles. Yeah, And man, it just didn't go up in these situations, which I think is what makes it so attractive to so many people. Yeah. And so that kind of thing happened over and over to us across 500 miles, you know, and it's just this opportunity as an American, um, like we're very self-sufficient, very self-confident, you know, we, I can do this myself, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's our way. And even going into the Camino, that's how I felt like doing all the research and have everything I need in my pack. And I, I've got all the information in my head. I'm not going to need any help. And yet there are days when everything goes wrong and you don't know how you're going to get to where you need to go, or you can't get to where you need to go, or you get to where you need to go and all the beds are full and you've got to walk to the next town, you know, or, you know, whatever problem it is. And there's a saying amongst pilgrims on the Camino that, uh, the Camino will provide, mm -hmm. um, and we found that to be true. Like something will work out. Somebody is going to take care of you. And the beautiful thing about that saying is what they're saying is the way will provide. And of course, Christ says, I am the way, right? Mm. Um, and so there's like kind of layers of meaning built into it that don't occur to people if you know you haven't studied the Bible. But if you have and you believe, 
then it's just there's this multi-layered experience of Christ to me. Um, I almost came to think of it um, as if Christ had laid himself down physically across this landscape and you are experiencing Christ over 500 miles every day in some physical embodied way. Like, you know, we talk about it often, at, at, you know, in our own churches as if, you know, oh, we've got a personal relationship with Jesus. And well, what does that mean? You know, it's just this kind of cerebral thing. And uh, in an experience like the Camino, what it means is food. <laughs> what it means is a bed, you know, and when you trust you know, that, that the way is going to provide this thing from you. And in my understanding, that way is Christ. And I think that's the metaphor that's operating across the whole thing. You're very, in a very physical way, um, relying on the provision of Christ uh, to give you what you need in a way that Americans just don't do. We don't, we don't get it. Yeah. 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 And it you know, it's, is, it's a, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, and going back to the way, you know, I mean, wasn't that what the early Christians were called, people of the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot they, of layers to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that you didn't, you you hinted at, and you talked about a little bit, but it felt like there was more to say. Was you guys, you know, you're on this trek, and you don't carry a lot. Not like mm-hmm. you're on the Appalachian Trail, right? Yeah, you, you don't carry as much with you as you would on a a hike on the AT but it forced you to rely on the kindness of others. And you're talking about that now, Yeah. but in specific, like in what way, um, learning to receive hospitality. Yeah. Uh, it, it, did it teach you that? Do you feel like you're better, better at that now than you were before? I do. It was a learning experience. Like, I think it's, it would be interesting to hear from people from other cultures, whether it's the same kind of struggle, but for Americans who, like I said, are so self-sufficient, like it's hard for us to admit that we need, (laughs) you know, the old lady up around the bend. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are moments, you know, where, you know, we, you finish climbing a mountain and you're just exhausted and you're looking at your map and you can see that there's not a town for another five kilometers and uh, your feet hurt and everything, you know, you're just done. And then you crest that mountain and you discover that there is a little shack that somebody's built there and there's an entire table spread with fresh fruit and water and snacks and, you know, whatever refreshment. And, you know, there's a sign that says, you know, it's all free. Uh, Put a donation in the bucket if you want, you know, and it's just like you didn't expect that. And here you are and you just get overwhelmed with gratitude for those little moments. Uh, and you want to thank somebody, you know, and you go to find somebody to thank and you do. Um, but it's bigger than that at the same time. Like it's teaching you something about how, you know, it's okay. You can, you don't need a full day, a full day's food in your pack. So we're going to take care of you. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's a spiritual lesson there in addition to a physical lesson. So it's like, I've also described the, the Camino as a uh, physical parable, um, meaning that, like it, it, it's it's telling you all sorts of spiritual truth um, in a very physical way. Like you walk through the parable um, and you learn it in your body in a way that we often have trouble learning it when we just read a, a metaphor on a page. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it even makes me think of a lot of the scriptures and how active they are. You know, as I walk through the valley. You know, he makes me lie down. You know, there's a lot of physicality in experiencing God and in, in the outdoors. And it seems very similar to what you're talking about. 
Yeah, very much. It's very easy to read the scriptures after having gone through an experience like that and understanding them in a much more physical, immediate way, Mm -hmm. because, you know, this is how for 99% of all human history, people commuted from place to place, you know, mm-hmm. you walked and you relied on the hospitality of strangers. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Why? Um, I guess the other thing that made me think about as we were talking was like, you guys grew up in Florida and I li- we, we live in Alabama and, you know, there's the, you know, Southern hospitality thing. I think we're, are we, is it, we're so used to like trying to give out hospitality that we have a hard time receiving it. We're more concerned about like trying to take care of other people and ourselves that we don't really receive it. Well, I guess, why is it so hard for us? Do you think to receive hospitality? Um, I don't know, but I do feel like it's an American thing. Um, you know, it's just like we or at least me, like I am so independent. Like it's really important to me not to have to rely on anybody else. And I don't say that as a virtue, <laughs> at least not anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just the way that we're taught to think, you know, it's uh, for our own pursuit of happiness. You know, we, we have our own yard, our own self-sufficient house where we don't have to see our neighbors, you know, with the fence around the back and like everything is self-sufficient. Yeah. And um, I just don't, I'm not convinced that that's healthy, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's pride, I guess. Yeah. So we're bred in that. And when we enter a place where we don't speak the language and we don't have the food we need and we don't know the way to the next town, all these things. And you walk into a house and somebody says, Hey, I'm going to take care of you. In fact, I've got you this food. I've got you this drink. If you want a bed? Um, and let me wash your of, feet. <laughs> then let me wash your feet sometimes. Mm, yeah. Wow. It's just overwhelming. And you have to learn to say, just say, thank you, <laughs> yeah. you know, and be grateful for it and realize that you didn't do anything to deserve this other than, hand over your 10 bucks, you know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. In fact, like it, it, to the money thing, there is a the sort of economy that's built up along the Camino is such that they intentionally make things affordable. So that most restaurants that you go into um, will have a pilgrim's menu that you can ask mm-hmm. for, which will be different prices um, where you can get a, three, four course meal for, you know, $7, $8, including free wine. <laughs> um, but you it's have the to dollar menu, the European dollar menu. <laughs> it is, except that it's the good stuff. It's the, the good, good stuff, stuff, not the cheap. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, again, it's like, it, it, that's another parable, you know? Yeah. Like the, the thing that the pilgrim gets is not the scraps. The pilgrim mm. gets the good stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. So that's so good. I mean, on so many levels, I mean, you, Gosh, we could riff off that for, for an hour, just talking yeah. about what the the good stuff is that uh, that the pilgrim is receiving beyond lodging, beyond the food, beyond the right. hospitality. Man, what That's was pretty the, wonderful. What was the thing that you carried, Pete? Yeah. So uh, the bigger story there is um, I told you this kind of synopsis of the movie The Way. Yeah. Uh, about mm-hmm. the guy that's sprinkling the ashes. Well, um, my priest, Thomas McKenzie, I was a good friend of mine, long time, great mm-hmm. friends. And uh, he had been planning to go hike the Camino for a couple of years. Yeah. And we had been planning it in tandem. We weren't going at the same time, but you know, we'd compare notes, like what kind of pack are you getting? What kind of shoes are you getting? That kind of stuff. And so it was a real uh, 
sort of fun thing to be doing together. And he was going uh, about six months before we were supposed to leave. And I just couldn't wait for him to go because I knew he'd love it. And then I couldn't wait for him to get back so I could pick his brain. Like, okay, what'd you learn? What should I do? What should I not do? You know, what are the good ideas? What are the bad ideas? Well, he got in a car wreck um, two days before he left and died, he and his daughter. Uh, and that was really hard on me. Like I said, he's a really close friend. And uh, it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, and his his uh, his wife gave me and my wife Thomas's pack uh, that he had already packed for the Camino. You know, had everything in it. And so, you know, my initial thought was, I'm gonna, I okay, so <laughs> I'm getting out of order. So I, there's a there's this thing on the Camino called uh, the Cruz de Ferro, which means Cruz the Iron de Cross, yeah. Cruz de Ferro. And uh, historically, or uh, I think I don't think it goes back a thousand years. I think it's maybe 100, 150 years old. Um, it's this iron cross that's erected on a mountaintop about three quarters of your way to Santiago. And uh, so traditionally what people do is you carry something from home, like a rock. You carry something from home that's supposed to be representative of some burden. And when you get to the, to the Cruz de Ferro, you, you throw it at the foot of the cross and you leave it there. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, obviously that's a powerful metaphor, you know, sounds like pilgrim's progress and you know <laughs> you can imagine how that preaches and so knowing thomas and how thoughtful he was i thought in his pack here somewhere is what he was car- going to carry and i'm going to carry it for him so i went through the pack looking i didn't find anything so i don't know what he had in mind but what i did find was his scallop shell uh, mm-hmm. the scallop shell is the symbol of the camino and mm-hmm. pilgrims wear a shell on their pack uh, so i took thomas's shell with me uh, carried it, you know, for 500 miles in my pack. Um, and, you know, to me, you know, it was symbolic of grief in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it was a hard, hard season. You know, after he died, we took care of his wife and his um, surviving daughter um, for a long, and still are, you know, it's just been a long grieving process. And so carried that to the Cruz de Ferro and hung it on the the beam of the cross when I got there and, you know, had her own little prayer and it was, it was a powerful moment. I mean, really powerful. And the thing that I love about telling this story is the scallop shell is, uh, you know, in modern days is the symbol of the pilgrim. You carry it with you as you walk, but historically uh, you didn't carry it with you. A pilgrim would walk to Santiago and then continue to the coast and find a, a, a scallop shell on the coast and then bring it back with them as proof that they'd been to the Holy City. Mm-hmm. So it was the proof that they had done it. And so like symbolically for me, hanging that shell there was in my mind, um, proof that Thomas had made it to the Holy City. He's there, man. Mm, yeah. There. Gosh, man. I still get choked up about it thinking about it. I didn't it. know I was gonna cry today. <laughs> Jeez, I'm sitting yeah. here with these allergies. I think my neighbors. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So I actually carried my so own powerful. shell too. And Gosh. when we got to the coast, I threw my shell into the ocean and then went and found another one, a, a fresh one on the beach and brought it home with me. That's so awesome. special. Yeah. I had seen that. I, I did not know that you all were, were, were close friends, but I had seen that tragedy. And I mean, the, I mean, it just seems like the whole Nashville area and surrounding was just completely broken. And um, yeah, man, he was a lot of, he affected a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
special, special person. Yeah, what was interesting about it was, um, I mean, we all knew and loved him. But after he died, people just came out of the woodwork um, talking about things that he was doing and people that we, he was helping and caring for that nobody else had any idea about. <laughs> he was just quietly serving more people than we could have imagined. Yeah. And uh, so the ripple effects of you know him being gone were far and wide. Man. Yeah, well, I certainly enjoyed you know the times that he would share on you know Rabbit Room Post or or what have you. Yeah, and he was, was just, a unique guy. <laughs> There's nobody else like him. But he he did yeah. the one minute review when he do the one minute review. Yeah, always one minute movie those. reviews. Yeah, they were great. They were always helpful for me. Yeah. So yeah, man, that's so. What a good, uh, what a powerful and very visceral metaphor. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure it changes. Yes. Like you said, I, I like something you said earlier. It made me think about people that I've met. I've never gone to the Holy Land, you know, to, you know, to see, you know, any of the places from, you know, from the Bible. But, you know, people say it changes the way they read scripture. Yeah. You know, when they, they, they stand on the Sea of Galilee and they breathe those. Yeah breathe in that air and they hear those sounds and feel the stones beneath their feet. And I think, you know, for you, as you read any scripture that, and that talks about all these metaphors that you've mentioned, like they hit a whole lot different now than they used to. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's funny too, that, um, uh, just historically the, the Camino is strewn with folklore Mm -hmm. and traditional Mm -hmm. tales. Um, which run the gamut from really cool to really hysterically weird. (laughs) And uh, so like, for instance, there was a one, I can't remember the name of the town, but there was one place we stopped that was, there was the, it was like the church of the dancing chicken. Um, And we're like, what is this all about? And the whole town, there was a festival there about the whole dancing chicken and, or or, no, it was called the chicken who stood up and danced. And (laughs) And we were like, what is this? And did a little research and found out that, you know, I don't know how long ago, probably, you know, medieval uh, time period, uh, there was like a barmaid who had fallen in love with this pilgrim who was coming through, only he rebuffed her. And so in spite, she stole, or she put like the ends silver into his pack and then called the police on him. And the Mm. police hung him. (laughs) And then she felt terrible about it. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm abbreviating the story, but what happened was that his parents were incensed by this, of course, and went to like the local magistrate and said, uh, um, you know, uh, this is not fair. You've got to save our son or something. And, and the magistrate said something to the effect of, it's too late. That boy is as dead as the chicken on my plate as he was eating his fried chicken. And at that moment, the chicken stood up and danced. <laughs> and then they went to the gallows and found that the boy was still alive. And it was a miracle. Oh, how and, so, about <laughs> and so the church has this little alcove with a chicken in it that is claimed to be a descendant of the chicken who stood up. And the danced. chicken. The yeah. chickens. So like there's oh, those little great. pieces of, you know, kind of church folklore that are super fun. Um, and then, like, it, it got even more interesting as we got closer to the coast. Um, there are folkloric um, beliefs that Jesus visited Spain during uh, his lost years. And, of course, there's no, you know, historical evidence for any of this. But who knows? They can believe it if they want. Mm. But they think that, you know, they know that certain area where Jesus came ashore and kind of spent time with the Druids. 
Uh, and there's all these accounts of the things that Jesus did there in Western Spain. Uh, but then I like to think that, you know, who knows if any of that's true, and I, I don't think it is. But I like to think that Jesus did that, and then he went back, and uh, at some point he said, hey, James, like, once I'm gone, there's these Druids you got to go meet. <laughs> mm. Because we do know that James went to Spain and, and founded the church in Spain. And wow. it's just a really fun idea to think that Jesus had made some Druid friends and sent James off to see them. Yeah, uh, prepared. But, yeah, who knows? But <laughs> who it's knows? really fun to read that kind of stuff that is so embedded in the local traditions. Yeah. But I've never heard of any of that, you know. And there's also like there are werewolves and you know, just really and giants and and all these kind of things that are associated with the whole path that you end up walking. So we had a little book full of all the folkloric tales, so that every night wherever you stopped, you could read, you know. The crazy little little tale that they nice. keep alive there, which was fun. That's yeah. amazing, man! I love that. I mean, and and it kind of ties in perfectly with this kind of this next segment of what we're uh, want to talk about on the podcast. We're going to shift gears just a little bit. So uh, many of our listeners are familiar with the Rabbit Room because yep. we've talked about Hutch Mood. We talked about you guys. We've had several Rabbit Room friends on our podcast. Um, you're the executive director and the managing editor of the Rabbit Room Press, and so that you, your whole life is kind of centered around storytelling, you know, in one form mm-hmm. or another, writing and playwright and all these things. What is it about storytelling that draws you to it? Um, I don't think we understand anything about ourselves or the world without putting it in terms of a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think... Uh, I mean, I, I think Jesus was the best example of that. You know, he told yeah. stories to get his points across. The Bible is if nothing. I don't think the Bible is anything more important maybe than a story mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a collected set of facts or a collective mm-hmm. set of um, sayings or teachings. Like things have to be uh, put into the context of a story for us as humans to really understand why they matter. And so I think it works on us at every possible level if that makes sense. So, you know, telling stories is just kind of baked into our, our being. And I just happen to love them because I think, you know, as a child, my dad was a preacher and, uh, you know, he, big part of preaching is storytelling. If you're a mm-hmm. good preacher, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's not fair. There are good preachers who are not storytellers, but, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my dad was, and he was a good one. And I can remember, you know, being a 10 year old boy sitting in the pew and just being bored to tears with theology and Bible verses but as soon as dad started telling a story to tie things together, like my ears perked up and I was paying attention, you know, and that was how the things found their way into my heart. Uh, um, I think um, preach, good preachers that aren't storytellers are like dancing chickens. They're pretty hard to find. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And miraculous. <laughs> oh. And maybe non-existent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Possibly. Oh, yeah. man. Is that, so, so, yeah. so for you, is that your love for writing and storytelling for yourself? Is that something that was an inspiration from you coming from him? What is, what is I don't really you? know how to locate. I don't really know how mm-hmm. to locate why it's there. You know, I've always just loved books, loved stories, loved movies, you know, wanted to make movies for a long time. Um, and it's just what I love doing. It's the way that I think about everything. Like I, I, you know, my wife is fond of saying like, I don't have any stories. She'll say, 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? You have a whole life. And she's like, yeah, but I don't have stories. I'm like, that's not true. You're just not thinking about things as a story. And, uh, you know, then she'll get around to tell it, talk, you know, relating an anecdote. And I'm like, bam, right there. That's a story. Mm. Only you're not, you're not, you're not storing it in your mind like you should. And she thinks that's funny because I, every day, everything is happening to me. I'm immediately storyizing it. Right. <laughs> so like, you know, if I, if I leave this interview and go get in a car wreck, like before I've even gotten to the hospital, I'm replaying it in my mind and trying to figure out how do I tell this as, as an effective story so that, you know, when I tell somebody about it, I can make it entertaining and interesting rather than just a list of facts. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I love that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so, you know, a lot of people laugh at me because they say like, you know, Pete has just got more stories than anybody I've ever met. Uh, and I, I don't think that's true. I think I've just kind of, practiced um filing things away in a way that i can recount them uh, and not everybody does that you know because we've already all got the same amount of life behind us by the time we reach 50 mm. you know so there's no reason it shouldn't be full of stories in my opinion yeah they're there we're just not telling them yeah yeah i love that that action of practicing and rehearsing in your mind like how do i yeah how do i process this as story and yeah, that's, a, that's well, really an exercise in what we, you know, we're trying to cultivate through this podcast as a, you know, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, you know, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the yeah. adventures that shape us. So they, all these things are shaping us and changing us and working yeah. on us, just like your time on the Camino. That's a part of your story. And like you're learning how to tell it. I mean, looking back, I mean, there has to be like writing um, inspiration that comes from the folklore stories that you were talking about in your own experiences. Sure. I mean, that will impact your writing from now on. I would imagine things will come to mind yeah. as you're writing in the future. Yeah. I, well, uh, two things. One is I think hope is a natural product of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I think hope is a very difficult thing to get your head around unless you understand the arc of a story that things are in motion, moving towards something else. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like developing a sense uh, or practicing the verb of hoping, you know, I think is an exercise in storytelling. You know, like we're telling ourselves a story about where this is all going, you know, or not going. Um, so I think it's important my, in that aspect. My kids have such are trying to learn that, you know, they're six and eight years old. And so when they see a movie that's got a little bit of conflict, they're like, I don't like this. It's like, mm-hmm. And I have to keep telling them. Just hang on. Keep watching. It gets better. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's got to, right. you got to watch the ending. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh-huh. that's totally true. And it's like, as a writer and a storyteller, like the more you, you know, participate in that art, the more you're able to appreciate how it's tinkered with. Mm. So I can watch a really dark movie that is maybe can be described as hopeless mm. and understand the hope that it's implying and it's negative. Does that make sense? Yeah. So something like Breaking Bad. Um, which is a TV series that I have loved, you know, and it's, it's very bleak and dark, but like as a storyteller, like I recognize that the reason this is powerful storytelling is because it's illustrating the reverse of hope. Mm. Does that make sense? And that's important mm-hmm. to me because that helps me better understand um, what it's acting against. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, and that's when you get into mature viewing and reading and all that kind of stuff because kids are not prepared for that. But right. as we mature, we should be able to, engage those sort of ideas in more complex ways that aren't as simple as, you know, conflict resolution. Yeah. 
I was given a a, a talk uh, just this past week about uh, having a an attitude of gratitude and how to be hopeful even when things aren't going well. And somebody asked me, said, you know, "What is a book that you could recommend?" And I, I literally the only thing I could think of was Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. And I was, I said, if you read that as someone having hope, that book will transform the way you look at hope. And and it's just the beauty um, of this optimism and just, just pressing forward in and leaning into hope that, um, yeah, Yeah. that, that story, it it, it exemplifies that. Yeah. That's a great example. I was going to, the thing that jumped into my mind was Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Well, tell us about that. You've spent a little time with that. I have. Um, yeah, just the, the backstory is, I think back in 2017, maybe, I was commissioned um, to adapt it for the stage. Um, and the funny thing about that is, you know, the, the director of the theater down in Houston, that their theater company had been founded by the woman who played Corey Ten Boom in the film back in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, and then they just had, she had passed away and they had just built this brand new, like world class theater called the George Theater, named after Jeanette Cliff George in her honor. And so it was kind of a way of christening that theater. They wanted to um, commission a new adaptation of The Hiding Place. Wow. So I, I had some connections to them and worked with some of those folks before. So they asked me if I was interested. And I said, well, let me go read the book and see if I like it. Because I, <laughs> when they asked me, I had heard Corey Ten Boom's name before, but I literally thought she was a Native American. Just because Ten Boom sounds like a Native American name. And yeah. I, I n- no idea who she was. I just knew that people loved her. Mm. And so I didn't know it was about the Holocaust. I didn't know this, you know, profoundly Christian story. So I went that weekend and read the book and called them back. And I was like, whoa, hey, yeah, let me tackle this. I'd love to. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> um, but I had a caveat. Like, um, the book, I felt like, was very clearly written in hindsight. So Corey was in, uh, you know, hid Jews during, in uh, the Netherlands during World War II. And then they were captured and sent to a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And she lost almost all her family. And so then, you know, she survived and went on to testify, you know, about Jesus and the Holocaust for years afterward and became beloved as a teacher and preacher and, you know, witness. And uh, then, you know, wrote this book. And what struck me about the book was it felt like it was written um, with her always knowing how it was all going to come end up. You know, mm-hmm. and so the result is, you, you know, you had scenes in which she and her sister are in a concentration camp, which is, you know, one of the most horrific um, settings you can imagine. People dying, being murdered, all this kind of stuff. And they're the way that it's written is they're just kind of like, man, we should just be grateful to Jesus because he went through all this, too. Mm-hmm. And they felt in the book, they feel a little happy go lucky in a way that was shocking to me. And I had trouble understanding um, especially her sister, Betsy, who I would argue is a saint of the first order. Uh, she was something otherworldly in the way that she understood um, Jesus. Uh, to be able to, in the midst of a concentration camp, look at you know everything that's going on and have pity for the guards 
um, in addition to the prisoners, because, you know, she says, think um, if they can be taught to hate like this, think how they can be taught to love. Mm. And so that was her mission. Like she, and like, that's not a normal response to being in a concentration camp. So I felt like my, the thing that I wanted to tackle in my adaptation was just getting to the root of how do you as a person end up at that place? And can it possibly be that simple? Mm. So I really wanted to write it without the benefit of hindsight, if that makes sense, and treat it as if the characters were there in the middle of it, trying to figure out what do we think about all this suffering and death. It um, brings a, more, a little bit more tension the way that you did it. Brings a lot more tension, and I just think it's a more relatable way of understanding it. So, you know, if Corey and Betsy Tinboom um, were in the middle of this environment, really having these immediate reactions of gratitude and grace, that is beautiful and miraculous and worthy of praise but it's also very difficult for us who haven't been there and experienced that to understand and i felt like um i wanted to find a way to make it uh, a story that i could enter into and believe and come to the same conclusion so i told people sometimes that in the process that i kind of saw it as a superhero movie (laughs) Hmm. an origin story like i didn't want to write it as if superman was superman from frame one I wanted to write it in such a way that when we got to the end of the story, Corey had become this incredible person that we know her to be. And we had seen how she had developed into that person. Um, And so it was a lot of fun to work on. It was also terrifying because I knew how beloved the book was. I knew how fervently people loved it and read it and reread it and knew it inside and out. And, uh, and I also knew that I was writing about the Holocaust, which is terrifying because, you know, if you do that wrong, you're never going to be forgiven. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was also the sense in which it's a very Christian story, but by placing this very Christian story in the context of the Holocaust, I didn't want to be seen as sort of trying to co-opt Jewish suffering for evangelism, if that yeah. makes sense, you yeah. know? So it's really important to me to figure out how to do this delicately and truthfully. Man, um, walking on a glass floor, man. <laughs> it was. And then in addition to that, like just the nature of adaptation is uh, just because something makes a great book doesn't mean it makes a great play. You know, you've got to you've got to take the material and figure out what is the best form of this in this medium. And theater is a very different medium than cinema or uh, uh, novelization. Um, so that was complicated. So I knew immediately that it was not going to read just like the book. You know, I needed to shake things up. And then, you know, also my wife and I went to Amsterdam uh, to visit Corey's house, to stand in the hiding place, to talk. And then we visited the concentration camp in Germany. And that was, you know, if the Camino was the most profound spiritual experience in a good way, I would say that visiting a concentration camp was the most profound thing I've ever done in a, in a negative way. I've often said that it's kind of like the reverse of going to the Grand Canyon. Have you guys been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, I have, yes. So if you've been, you've had this experience of, you know, you've seen pictures of it all your life, you've seen it in movies, you've read about it. But then when you go, you walk up to the realm and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so much bigger than anything ever communicated to me. Like you can't, your mind can't encompass the largeness of it. And it's just awe inspiring. And going to a concentration camp was the opposite of that. And what I mean was, um, for example, 
we got to the end of the tour and there was a book like a phone book on a sort of pedestal you know the thin paper and the really tiny people don't even know what phone books are anymore <laughs> for <laughs> you youngsters we used to have phone books and a really thin paper really thick book with really small writing and you open the book and it, every entry is a person's name the date they were interred in the camp and the day they died in the camp wow. and it's just this thick book of thousands and thousands and thousands of names just for that camp and then you walk into the next room and there's this huge map uh, with a dot for every concentration camp. And there are hundreds of them and every one of them has a book like that. Mm. And like, you can't get your mind around just how big and how dark and evil all of it was. Because in addition to just dying, you know, there was creativity involved. Like there are architectural plans and there was this vast sense of like, how can we do this more efficiently? You know, and, and people would come in and study how to how do how do we kill these people in a better way, and that, that's a level of evil that's hard to get your head around. You know, it wasn't just oh we didn't realize what we were doing. It's like no, we realized it and we tried to do it better. <laughs> you know, so that wow. experience for me was incredibly powerful, um, and I couldn't have written a play without it. I don't think, mm. but it, it kind of like the central part of that experience was standing in front of the crematorium oven, where and spoilers here. But the crematory oven where um, Betsy Ten Boom, you know, passed out of the world mm. bodily. Uh, and that, you know, in the context of the research and the story and living with those characters was just awful. And my wife and I just went and sat in the car and cried. Just you know, it was just deeply, deeply yeah. dark. And in a way, I, I encourage anybody to go experience it because it, it really expands your sense of empathy and you know, a lot of the ways. Um, so coming back from that, you know, sitting down to write, uh, I felt like at that point I had a commission and a calling and knew what direction to send it in. And it was interesting. The uh, So much of the, the play is about the light that is dark, deeper than all darkness. You know, so that was one of the things that Corey would say is that, um, you know, Jesus' love is deeper than any darkness. Mm. And so in the context of the play, we wrote a lot about light. And then, you know, when you get into the concentration camp, it's so dark hearing them talk about the light that is deeper than all darkness. And so then the, the transformative moment of the play for me is when Betsy, when her body is actually put into the oven, which happens on stage, um, the oven is opened. And instead of the fire of suffering and hell that we associate that, instrument with the thing that actually comes out of it is a beautiful brilliant light mm. meaning that there is a light behind that darkness right and uh trying to do in some sense the same thing that christianity has done with the cross which prior to christianity was just the instrument of cruelty and evil mm. and that that symbol has been redeemed means something else and so we were trying in the play to to do a similar thing with that oven and demonstrate that Betsy's passage in that um, was not into darkness, but was into light, you know, mm. because there's somebody that had gone there before. Um, so anyway, it was a really powerful experience, did well in Houston. And then during COVID, I, you know, well, before COVID hit, I wanted to bring it to Nashville. And then COVID shut down theater across the country, across yeah. the world. 
And so I spent a couple of years really rethinking the show. I, I had the sneaking feeling that it, it, its Houston iteration had not achieved its full potential. So working with a director that I have a great relationship with here in Nashville, we reimagined some things and rewrote the show in, in large part and then premiered it uh, this past summer, uh, summer of 2022 here in Nashville and um, did really well. And you know, one of the most exciting things about that was we took the time to film it. Yeah, that was that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, because yeah. you even earlier yeah. you said you know how different it is you know in play form versus book form versus film. Yeah. But now you've brought those things together, which, <laughs> which is, is complicated. Yeah, man. But when yes. you showed the you showed the preview at Hutchmoot, and I chill bumps, man. I looked oh, at Brad, <laughs> and there were tears in my eyes, and that's I said, awesome. "Bro, <laughs> we got to get Pete on the podcast." That was like the <laughs> the moment I was like, "We've got to talk about this." Yeah. film adaptation i mean it was so powerful and that was just a trailer yeah thanks um well I, there's a some filmmakers here in town laura and tony matula who are a bit largely involved in the theater community and they do lots of music videos and all other things and over the past couple of years we had worked with them a couple of times uh, we shot a wendell berry short film um for hutchmoot homebound in 2020 mm-hmm uh, called Sonata at Payne Hollow. And that was our first attempt to sort of think, hey, so this is a piece of stage writing, but can we film it in a way that's cinematic and make it more than just filmed theater? Um, and it's just kind of like a hybrid art form, because I think we've all seen like the masterpiece theater kind of versions of, you know, Shakespeare, which right. just end up kind of dry and not super interesting because they're just a presentation of theater. And so we wanted to think, okay, is there a is there a, a better way to do that? A way to approach it with a cinematic eye that's not full on cinema where we're recreating reality, um, but is still theater filmed in a cinematic way. And so we had a good time doing that, and I thought we were successful in doing that with the Sonata at Bain Hollow. And then the following year at Hutchmoot Homebound, and I should probably say Homebound was our online version of the conference during COVID. Right. Um, we did a similar thing with an excerpt of a play that I've been a musical I've been working on called Linden Fair, and we brought them in to film that, and that went really well. So we had had some you know kind of proof of concepts along the way. So when we did the hiding place, we just thought, you know what, can we do this at feature length? And we just took the dive and we did it. And um, you know we've almost got a final cut of the movie now, and I'm really thrilled with how it's turned out. I think it's I think it's going to be a powerful experience for folks. When is that supposed um, to air? So our current, this is not public knowledge yet. We haven't really released the release dates yet, but it'll be in August. Okay. Um, sometime this August. And it'll be kind of a, it'll be released through Trafalgar, which is sort of like Fathom events, you know, it'll be a one, two night only kind of thing. And then if it does well, then we'll, we'll do some extensions, hopefully. Wow, that's uh, exciting. But that was exciting. And, you know, it was a great creative experience. And, um, allowed us, I think, to capture the best version of that play on screen. One of the things in working with theater, one of my frustrations has always been that like theater is so much fun and it's so much work. And, uh, you know, 30, 40 people put in just night and day work for weeks to provide this experience to audiences. And then when the curtain goes down on the closing performance, it just all evaporates into thin air. Yeah. You know, you got nothing to show for it except for a few pictures and some word of mouth, hopefully. And I hated that. <laughs> and so 
you know, in trying to think like, how do we do, how do we come up with a sustainable theater model? We thought like, well, if we can, if we can close the stage show, but then still have an artifact that people can engage with, Mm -hmm. then hopefully we can, that's something that will monetize and can feed um, finances, finances back into the theater program to help the next show get off the ground. So it's, it's partly a creative thing. It's partly a financial thing. And uh, so far we're seeing that that I think is going to work because the idea would be that, you know, whenever we do an original production, we want to come up with this cinematic way of filming it so that audiences beyond Nashville can experience it. And then hopefully it'll make money to be able to continue the film program or the theater program. That's, cool. so that's kind of the direction we're heading. In. And we, we're doing the same thing with audiobooks. I did an adaptation of Frankenstein for the 200th anniversary of its publication a few years ago. And uh, we did the stage show. It was very successful. And uh, as soon as that closed, we got the whole cast into the studio to do an audio version of it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of rewrote, you know, all the stage directions in kind of like radio voice, you know, so that you've got the person saying, you know, the monster walks into the room and picks up the table and flings it at Victor, you know, <laughs> that kind of dramatic stuff. <laughs> and so we had the whole cast re-record it. And that was nominated for, you know, some awards and stuff. And as a, a, we all thought it was a really engaging way to experience the play. And again, yeah, it provided this artifact that persists beyond closing night um, to hopefully help, you know, the whole theater program persists. So we're trying to figure out, do we want to do that with a hiding place? I don't know if we do or not, just because I'm trying to imagine how that and the film interact. Cause if we're just going to sell the film to streaming, does it make sense that you can still buy it as an audio book? I just don't know, mm. but we're playing with those ideas, cool? which I think most people don't do in the context of theater. Yeah, I so love my, that. Da- my daughter just finished uh she was she's been in a couple of plays, but she was this time she helped uh, the stage manager. So she was helping, you know, pull the curtains and yeah. set changes and so forth. And so they just had their last uh, their last shows on Sunday afternoon. And so there was that, that feeling yeah. like you talked about, of, you know, it's Gone. done. It's done. and It's over. But uh, but it's been a great experience for her. You yeah, know, too. it's so much fun. Yeah, the thing I love most about theater yeah, the thing I love most about it is like I, I started out as a, a writer, you know, a novelist, which I love. But, you know, when you're a novelist, you are sort of the final arbiter of the reader's experience. You know, like I control every single word that the reader reads. And uh, I enjoy that and that's fun, but it's very solitary. Uh, and then with theater, I discovered really quickly that even though I've written the script, it, you know, that's just the beginning. You know, then you have, you know, the set designer and the director and the lighting director and the, the, you know, composer and all these other people that are bringing their individual uh, art forms to bear on the skeleton that you've given them. And the result is just this enormously collaborative thing that is so much better than you could have done on your own. Mm-hmm. And the process of it even is, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll take your script and you sit in a room with all the actors and you read it. And then you all discuss like, hey, what worked, what didn't? And then I'll go home that night and rewrite things. Come back in the next day and we'll do it again. So it's this constant collaborative process of trying to get at what is the best possible version of this. And then once you've arrived at it, then you set everybody else loose on their particular art form and doing the best thing they can do. And so what an audience sees on opening night is just the product of so much individual creativity that nobody can claim you know, mm. responsibility for it entirely. 
which is really refreshing to me because it's always been uncomfortable for me. Like if somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I read your books. They're the best things I ever read. I love it so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I get really bashful. I'm like, okay, thanks. They're not the best books in the world, but thank you for saying that. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just awkward. It's, I'm not comfortable with it, but in theater, like if somebody comes and says, Hey, I saw the hiding place. It was, it just moved me to tears. Best thing I've ever seen. I'm like, Oh man, didn't they do a great job? Mm. Like I have all these other people to point at, you know, because it's not yeah. just me anymore. Yes. And I love that. I think well, even the audience <laughs> takes place in the, in the, the, not the creation of it, but the experience of it. The audience is just as yeah. much a character. Yeah. I, I've said that the, the audience is the final cast member. Mm. And a great example of that is, uh, like with the hiding place, you know, there's a scene early on in the show when the whole family is sitting around the table for breakfast. And, uh, you know, in my mind, this is where we're establishing all the characters and their interrelationships. And it's a really fun conversation with lots of jokes and back and forth banter and stuff. But uh, what we found is in rehearsal, you know, all the actors are, are aware that we're doing a Holocaust play. So everybody's approaching things very seriously. And they go through the lines and stuff. And I keep saying, hey, don't you realize that's a joke? Like, you got to deliver that like a joke. And they weren't getting it. They just weren't mm -hmm. getting it. And I was just kind of like stressed out, like, what is going to happen here? <laughs> uh, and, and that went on. And I just had to put up with it until uh, opening night. And a line came out of somebody's mouth. And the audience laughed. And immediately they were like, uh, the actors were like, <laughs> oh, we get it now. Now we they, get it. They can't see what they're doing, right? <laughs> But they required the participation of the audience to inform what's going on in stage. And then that entire scene just became delightful every night as they began to understand, oh, this is where I lean into the joke. And this is where I pause for a dramatic effect, all that kind of stuff, which is really hard to, to hear and understand when you're just performing it um, in rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, one of the. One of the questions that we we love to ask, um, we often will, will refer to the podcast as a digital campfire. Um, so you said earlier, people say Pete has all kinds of stories. He has more stories than anybody we know. Do you have a, a like a sort of a compressed, good little campfire story that's your favorite campfire story to tell? And that oh would you gosh. share that with us? Okay, so here's a funny story about that. <laughs> <laughs> which is, not, which is just about a, a story to whatever the answer is. <laughs> awesome. But, uh, you know, you sent me that question earlier to think about. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I wasn't sure. And I, I was sitting in the room with, you know, my staff and I said, Hey, what do you, what story should I tell, uh, to, to the staff? And they throw out all these stories and I kept saying, no, nah, I can't tell that one. Nope. I can't tell that one. Nope. I can't tell that one. <laughs> Uh, not for public consumption. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I'm not sure what the answer is. Gosh, let me think about it. Um, I feel like it'd be good. To, I, I do. I will say that I do not have like one that I always like to tell. I've got a whole library of them in my mind that I can pull out. So like pulling the best one is always like a good question. Is there um, something? I, I, maybe that. Well, I hope you narrow it down. Was there anything really funny that happened? I mean, you're on the Camino for you know, yeah. weeks, was there like a particular funny thing that you guys look back on and really laugh at still? Here is a funny one. Okay. So I got this, uh, this, uh, journal here yeah. that somebody gave my wife before we left and she kept meticulous notes of what we did every day. But one of the ideas that we had, uh, and when we left was we wanted to write a song that we would sing along the way, kind of like, um, Oh, what is that song? Uh, 
there's a hole in the bottom of the sea. There's a hole yeah. in the bottom of the sea. There's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole in the bottom of the sea. There's a frog in the hole in the hole in the bottom of the sea. You know what I'm talking? Yeah, so yeah. We, we, we wanted to say, okay, so every day we will add something to the song for our entire walk. And so uh, she recorded that. And I haven't sung this in so long, but I pulled it out because I thought it might come up. So I'm not going to sing you the whole thing because it, it, everybody would shoot themselves. It would <laughs> because I'm because me singing is not any fun to listen to, and because uh, it's just really long. But uh, just as an example, every day we would walk and we would look for the thing that we would add to the song. So it would usually be something that was humorous or something that was like alliterative, and just had the right syllable count or whatever. So a little bit of that is, and it started with the beginning of the song is. There's a whole lot of pilgrims on the road. There's a whole lot of pilgrims on the road. There's a whole lot of pilgrims. There's a whole lot of pilgrims. There's a whole lot of pilgrims on the road. So then day one was, there's a slug on the fence and a whole lot of pilgrims on the road. <laughs> you with me so far? Yeah. So, uh, so eventually you get to things like, the town is a lie. There's an apocalyptic donkey and smells like cows. There's an octopus with lips. Uh, <laughs> we're going up a long, long way in a Templar castle. Drop a rock at the cross. There's druids on the mountain. Free food feast and tapas in Leon. And anyway, so dancing chicken make the song. I think it did. Hold on, let me find that. Had to have. Had to have. Fountain full of wine. A million shades of green. A vineyard in the valley. Graffiti on the wall. One hundred miles. Oh man! And a cannon goes boom. And a bus to Belorado. Oh no! The cannon goes boom. That's the one. Okay, so that was the city where we were, where the chicken was. We hiked all day, got to the city, and we're exhausted. Uh, I think it was, oh, what's the, hold on, let me look, see what the name of the city was. It is, um, we were exhausted. So we get to the albergue and we laid down, and it turned out that they were having a big festival. It was in Azopra? No. Santo Domingo. Santo Domingo. Uh, it turned out that they were having this festival for the chicken. And the way that the festival sound started. <laughs> I'm all in so with they, a chicken festival, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the way that it started, is they were they were firing off like legitimate cannons. Oh, uh, it, there were no cannonballs in it, but it was gunpowder. Yeah. And it sounded yeah. as loud as a cannon was. And they, because we were staying right in the heart of the town in this historic albergue, and like everything was right outside our window. The cannons were right outside the window and we're trying desperately to take a nap. And every 13 seconds or so, there's a cannon blast. Pete's, Pete's transported back to the Battle of Franklin all of a sudden. <laughs> For real, man. I was so done. I was so done with that cannon. And it went on way longer than it should have. <laughs> Eventually we gave up and went outside and enjoyed the festivities. And uh, anyway, that was our time oh. in Santa Domingo. I love it. I, I so think, how's that? I, that's, no, that's awesome. Great. That's perfect. <laughs> Pete, we um we really appreciate your time, man. Uh, the last question we like to ask is, what's your next adventure? Do you have anything coming up uh, like the Camino or something creative you're putting out into the world or you know, anything uh, that, that this is, yeah. what's your next adventure right here? Good question. My wife is on her adventure right now. She's in London doing research on a book. And I'm kind of jealous. She's been there for two weeks and she's got two more weeks on her own in London. Um, I will say a couple of things like I'm working on a new theater production, which hopefully uh, will open this uh, holiday season. I uh, can't announce that yet, but I'm excited about it. Oh, um, of course, the hiding place I'm excited about that will yeah. be out this fall. Um, 
And then we are really itching to get back to the Appalachian Trail at some point. Like we, we started uh, down in Georgia at the beginning of it at mm-hmm. uh, Springer Mountain mm-hmm. and did the first 40, 50 miles. And then we've done a couple other little sections of it. But, uh, you know, we would like to eventually do the whole thing. Only I don't have it in me at 51 to through hike the whole thing. Yes. So doing it in 40, 50 mile chunks sounds much more doable yeah. to me. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. But uh, I love it. It's just. Uh, hiking is in my blood and I just love getting away from everything I'm walking. And to be honest, like we have talked several times about, we might just pick up and go do the Camino again. Mm. Um, I, I didn't say this earlier, but here is the chief difference between the hiking like you do on the Appalachian trail, which is out in the middle of nowhere and the Camino. The Camino is like walking from one coffee shop to another <laughs> um, for 500 miles. Like you can always look forward to like, no matter where you are, you, you know that in the next hour or two, you're going to go through some little vi- village and they're going to have an amazing espresso and something delicious to eat. And you can sit there on the porch and enjoy Sounds it. Like and then you get back up and you walk a little longer. And it is not hard to go 500 miles that way. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what, are, what are some of the ways people can support your writing and support the work that you're doing? Um, I would just say like all my writing flows through the rabbit room at some point, you know, whether it's theater, the rabbit room theater program, or the books that I write, the short stories that I write, the books that I edit and publish, you know, it all flows through the rabbit room. So like, we're grateful for any support that the rabbit room can get. Um, Just if anybody's never heard of the rabbit room, like our, it's a nonprofit organization. Our mission is that we uh, cultivate and curate stories, music, and art to nourish Christ-centered communities for the life of the world. And what we mean by that is that, in short, we really believe that the creative arts are um, powerful nourishment for the church, uh, and that the more well-fed the church is on that, the better it is for the world. Mm. Yeah. It, so it we're has committed. put so much good into the world, and all the stories that you all share and write and produce, I mean, it is. I think it is a true treasure for the uh, Capital C Church. Well, thank it's, you. I, th- I said before that it's hard to see it sometimes because we're on the inside of it and we're just kind of exhausted and wondering if it, any of it works. So it's always good to hear from people on the outside uh, that appreciate what's going on. Thank you. Yeah, you know, part of our story, uh, Pete, is Brian and I were there in 2019 was the first time that we'd come and then we were able to go back. But that first time we're together, um, we had we'd kept up with each other uh, over the phone for years. We just lived in different cities. And uh, that was a uh, first real time. We'd really, really hung out um, a lot and we fished together um, some here and there. But it was on that trip that sort of our creative juices were sort of rekindled for both of us. And really one of the, the puzzle pieces and sparks for this conversation, for the podcast that we have that we're doing that you're taking part of. So it's sort of full circle to have to have mm-hmm. you part of that and and how the rabbit rooms played a big part in that. We've had lots of people from, you know, from James Whitmer has been a part of, of our conversation. SD Smith's going to be on this season with the podcast. Andrew, Andrew came on when we talked to Andrew. He's okay. (laughs) We talked about uh, the the God of the garden uh, on there. And so we've, we've had several different rabbit room friends be a part of this conversation. So we're just trying to do our best to, to add and spread the word about the rabbit room and, and Hutch yeah. and how much it's meant to us. And well, thank you. That makes me super excited. One of the things that, um, sorry if I'm going over, but, um, 
you know, for, for a long time, there was this sense that we would do things at the rabbit room and people would be like, oh, I want to be part of the rabbit room. How do we, how do we come to guard that? And, you know, that's good and fine. I'm glad that people think that. But our real goal was not that we want everybody to join the rabbit room. Our goal is that we want people to do good work where they are in their own way. Mm, yeah. And I feel like you guys are a perfect example of that. Like, you don't need our approval. You don't need to come and do it in our house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your house is a good one, too. <laughs> So make it beautiful in all the ways that you feel called to. That's exactly our heart, man. So yeah. just Thank know you that you've inspired us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's also, encouraging for me to hear. Just a small little thing. So when you said that sort of mission statement, was that influenced by Alexander Schmemann, by the way? Oh, yeah, for okay. sure. Okay. It was just, well, for the life of the world there, it's like, what a great essay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, I, like the, his whole idea of the, the sacramental world is yes. my entire worldview. And the Camino book. is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Like it is a, the Camino itself is a physical and outward expression of inward and spiritual grace. Mm. Mm. That's so good. Well, Pete, thanks for taking time to join us, man. This has been such a great, great conversation. We're so thankful for the people that do listen and uh, that have engaged in this conversation with us and been on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please take some time to share it with a friend. Maybe someone uh, who's interested in pilgrimage or going on the Camino and they want to, they're building up their, uh, their research about their trip to the Camino. Maybe this will be beneficial to them. Um, it would bless us so much if you took time to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. That just helps us get the word out for the podcast. But above all things, uh, We hope these stories encourage people. They challenge people to write their own stories and share their adventures in the place that we love to call the storied outdoors. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take some time to leave us a review. Or better yet, share it with a friend. We hope these stories encourage you. Encourage you to write your own stories and share your own adventures in the storied outdoors. Mm